I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, If you want to find what we're up to... Find me on Twitter at Jay Beardmore. Find this podcast at The Rugby Dungeon on Twitter. And you can find Egg Chasers as well. Meet him and Phil every Monday without fail at Rugby Podcast. Okay. Now we've got all that done, uh, let's get on with the interview. Today I'm joined by Dr. White. Dr. White is a concussion specialist with a special interest in the social cultural aspect of concussion. He's also worked in equality, diversity and inclusion with particular experience in LGBT issues. Dr. White, thank you for joining me. You're, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, just before we continue, um, is there anything else that I should have added to that introduction there, which uh, you'd like to inform our listeners of? Uh, no, I think you've done a, a fairly good job there, really. <laughs> um, thank you. Okay, so um, recently uh, I have come across your name because of the controversy in rugby around concussions, and you've been working with Dr. Alison Pollock. So I guess we'll start with this. We are talking here, aren't we, not about concussions in the professional game, but concussions within the school game and in relation to children. Yeah, and, and that's our focus. You know, we're really, um, there's lots of attention from World Rugby, from the RFU, from other rugby um, bodies around the world at their professional league game. But actually the most vulnerable people within all of this are children. And they're the ones that we should be protecting the most. Yeah. Um, okay. So, just out of interest, how how did this first come across your? Uh, how did this first come across your attention? Yeah. So, um, uh, in a previous life, uh, I worked at the Rugby Football Union uh, back in 2010 to 2012, mm-hmm. and then following working there, um, I sat on the executive board of the England Rugby Football Schools Union. Okay. Uh, and this is the this is the body that's responsible for schools rugby in England. Mm-hmm. And then in 2014, uh, Professor Pollock uh, released a book called Tackling Rugby, What Every Parent Should Know. Um, And of course, uh, as a rugby person, uh, I read the book uh, one day. Uh, It made me very angry. Uh, I got really frustrated. Um, But after a bit of reflection and going back a second time to to read it a few days later, I realised that actually lots of the things that she was highlighting and and kind of uh, mentioning in her book were both true but she didn't understand the full story Mm. Uh, and and, and lots of people might say that but but my perspective was it was actually a lot worse than she ever knew um and having been sat on lots of board meetings at at the elite level of schools rugby um 
I was privy to lots of the discussions about how are we tackling and addressing the issue of concussions back in back at that time. Um, and so I, I spent a number of years uh, just kind of trying to work things out. I made a number of recommendations to, to the RFU and the England Rugby Football Schools Union about how we can improve the situation on injuries and concussions for young people in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but lots of this went unheeded and, and, and ignored. Uh, so subsequently, I then uh, decided to study a PhD looking at the issue, um, do some real research into it, uh, and we found a whole array of problems. Um, and that's really where this passion has come from. You know, I, I love the sport of rugby. I'm really passionate about it. Mm-hmm. But we need to be better. Yeah, so this is a really interesting point here because I have the same sort of visceral reaction when I read things like no more tackling in schools and that kind of thing. I, I, I definitely understand where you were originally on this. And before deciding to interview you, I decided to look at a few of the papers and a few of the issues brought up by yourself and Dr. Pollock. And one of the things which uh, which I read, and I, you know, it's changed my opinion completely on a lot of things, was the impact of tackling, particularly for young girls and in the women's game. Could you just talk about that a bit, please? Yeah, so um, obviously the, the, the RFU and other rugby organisations around the world are focusing on the women's game as an area for growth. Mm. Um, there is a uh, there is a reducing level of um, participation in the men's and boys' game. Yeah, but there is increasing participation in the women and girls' game. So it's a it's a growth area for the sport or the sport. Um, however, in terms of concussion research, there's been a, a huge lack of of research into women's brains and the impacts of concussion on women's brains. But some of the things we have seen is that there is an increased risk of, of women being fatally hurt by concussions. And, and I know in the UK, there's been a number of cases, or high profile cases in the news of young women dying from concussions within within the game. Um, of course, there's the high profile case in Canada of Rowan Stringer, who, who died uh, from concussion in rugby. And, and I know her family are really passionate and, and, and advocate for, for safer sport for, in, in rugby for players. So yeah, the, the, we we just don't know enough about the girls' game yet, but we all of the evidence so far is suggesting that they're at a higher risk and it, it's going to be much worse for them. Yeah, because you start reading one thing and obviously it snowballs. So I went down this rabbit hole somewhat, and it just strikes me that women are far more likely to get concussed, no matter what the sport is, just for physiological differences. And what it led me to think is, you know, if we were to if we were to expose boys to the same risk or we were to change the rules in rugby or the laws in rugby to mean that they were at the same risk as as uh, as women are now particularly young girls i think we'd be in a totally unacceptable situation yeah and and it's a difficult one I'm, i i certainly would never support making the risk any worse than it is you know mm. i think it's too high for boys so but but you're right. We can see that the risk is high for girls. So why are we why are we not focusing on that as a concern? And I know there has been an increase in research uh, from some people in Swansea um, that have started looking at the, the women's game concussions. Um, much more needs to be done uh, until we have all of the answers. Um, my my personal opinion would be that whilst we're trying to find those answers, we take a real precautionary approach. And and for me, at, at participation level for youth in schools in, in we, we can just easily transition to the touch game. Yeah. Um, we don't need to do contact. Um, for those of your listeners, um, uh, I, I watched the Super Bowl on Sunday night and stayed up really late, which which I was regretting uh, <laughs> yes. on Monday morning. Me too. But but a really interesting, 
a really interesting fact that Tom Brady, who, who has won more Super Bowls than any franchise in America, didn't do contact football before age 14. Mm. And so we, we need to dispel this myth that we need to be teaching people contact early. You know, the best player in contact sports, probably worldwide at the moment, uh, having more success than anyone across sports. Uh, and, and he didn't do it as a, as a child. So why do why do we need to force this upon kids? Yeah, it's an in, um, it's an interesting point point of view. That um, just before we move on to the general uh, idea of transitioning away from contact rugby in schools over to touch. Just one more, th- I'd just like your thoughts a bit more on the women's game. Do you, do you think one of the reasons that we are promoting the women's game so much is something which you touched on earlier on, which is lack of particip- participation from men? Because I've got to say, I do have a bit of a, a bias here. So part of me thinks that we are, as a sport, trying to plug the hole left in our numbers by reporting the increase in the women's game without actually thinking of the health consequences that go alongside the women's game. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting one. And I think it's uh, I think it's two processes, really, that are driving the, the focus on the women's game in, in, in rugby at the moment. I think, firstly, times are changing. Mm-hmm. Um when I was at the RFU, there was a very, you know, at that point, there was the RFUW for the women and the RFU and the RFUW sat in the corner of the offices and were, 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 a, were a different organisation in many respects. And, and, and I think times are changing that more and more people in rugby generation um, is a change. Um, so I think the appreciation and, and equality towards women is improving. I'm not saying it's perfect by no means, you know, we've still got a massive underrepresentation of women in the leadership of the RFU. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there is an improvement. So I think that's the first point, but I also think that there is a, uh, an aspect of essentially the sport is measured on their participation figures. How many people are playing this? Yeah. Um, that's one of their key drivers, one of their key success criteria. And we know that the, the number of boys and men playing the sport is dropping at, at, at huge rates. You know, we can see about a 10% drop over the last five years. That's massive. So the way to plug that gap is by increasing participation in the women's game. And therefore, hopefully, that will mitigate the drop in men playing. Um, from, a, from an equality perspective, I think this is a great thing. You know, I, I absolutely encourage um, more and more inclusion in sport uh, across gender race all sorts of divides Mm -hmm. but at the same time there is a health risk to this yes and and, you know that's why i would always encourage non-contact sport over contact sport you know making sure that we put in all the provisions possible to protect these these young people um and we should be telling these young girls and, and women the risks of concussion on their brains and you know what what are they signing up to yeah. So that they can make that informed decision. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and not least because I think we kind of know. I mean, I don't think we, we don't know the whole story, of course, but we do know that the women's elite team are spending a lot of time working out on their necks. And there's a good reason for that. And I just wonder, you know, should there be some metrics out there to say you can by all means play contact sport whenever you wish but in the meantime you should be prepared by doing xyz and here are the measurements that you need in order to somewhat mitigate the risk you'll never mitigate it all but you know here are some criteria yeah absolutely and 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 it's interesting you you raise the kind of neck um strength issue there is there is a a tiny bit of evidence that that may may mitigate against concussion Mm -hmm. um 
but it's certainly nowhere near conclusive. In fact, it, it's a kind of I, I would class it as an idea rather than evidence uh, at the moment. So uh, um, there are there are some unintended consequences of this, though. Go on. And one of the one of the factors um, around concussion is its impact on sleep um, and, a, and a condition called obstructive sleep apnea, where basically your quality of sleep is reduced. Uh, the interaction between sleep and neurodegenerative diseases is really strong. Yep. Um, so what, what we should be doing, uh, and, and neck strength may have an impact upon increasing the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. Oh. So what we should be doing is looking at what are these unintended consequences. So maybe, you know, and, and there's nowhere near enough evidence to make this claim yet, yeah. maybe neck strength does protect against concussions. But if somebody still gets concussed, then we're increasing their risk of uh, obstructive sleep apnea and then potentially increasing their risk of neurodegenerative disease anyhow so we've got a whole set of unintended consequences from the solution that needs to be explored interesting so tell me if i'm wrong here so if i've if i've misunderstood this because it's very good to dispel the myths around concussion my understanding was that the concussion in the women's game is not necessarily generated by the contact or the collision but more the action of heads bouncing on bouncing on the ground and as i understood it this kind of correlates with the research regarding um cy- uh, cyclists falling off bikes women in car crashes all manner of other concussive incidents which have more to do with the secondary impact if that makes sense yeah so so i i uh i i think that is a myth <laughs> um, okay i i think i think the notion of heads bouncing on the ground whilst might sound compelling, uh, I, I think is just nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, th- there is some evidence that there is a, a physiological difference in the construction uh, between men and women's brains that may be um, the cause or difference in kind of their ability to, to manage the concussion. Um, but I, I certainly am not buying into, um, you know, that women are essentially weaker, thus their heads are banging on the ground when they're being tackled. I think that's... Uh, that's absolutely a strawman argument. Really? So how do you account for things like um, the increase in deaths in car crashes, for instance? Because that would be, a, so, that'd be a, the same concussive incident for a man and a woman, but a woman's got more of a chance of dying. Yeah, and, and again, those physiological differences between men's and women's brains may be the reason for that. Right. Men may be, um, and, and, and it's a real new area of research. You know, we don't have the answer, so lots of this is supposition. Um but but I, I certainly wouldn't be suggesting that men are surviving because they're able to hold their strength together better. Uh, that evidence is certainly not there. I, I, so again, this this confused me a bit because I would have said that the road traffic um, that the road traffic research does strongly suggest this, particularly for cyclists. Yeah, so so I, I've not looked at that research. I'd be I'd be interested to do so. Yeah, um, but but certainly our knowledge of women's brains. Um, is different. We're seeing different uh, pathology in terms of concussion. Okay. Um, so I think that's a better route to go along rather than considering their wider physiological me- metrics. And, and just as an example of that, mm-hmm. you know, that would that would highlight um, that smaller people, those that didn't have as much strength, those that are um, perhaps slimmer, would have a higher risk of dying in car accidents than muscular people. Yeah, and I guess I, it would. I've not seen that. Right. So what I mean, not that we know, but we we think then based on uh, uh, on the evidence, it's more physiological difference with the brains rather than the musculature. 
yeah, so so it's seen as a, a slight physiological difference in in brain uh, structure, but but we you know this is right at the early stages of, of its science. You know we haven't looked into women's brains enough, so we 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 from what we're seeing, there's an increased risk of concussion, but mm. it's very you know people yeah. haven't been looking at women's brains for long enough, and that's a problem. Yeah. Um, is that a case so, just yeah, in this country a... or is that in- internationally? Because there's also some interesting research, isn't there, about the difference between concussion rates of women athletes in US colleges and men in US colleges, mm. which, you know, and it, again, goes back to the point that we were talking about, um, that a woman playing soccer is about as likely to get concussed as a man playing American football, which is terrifying if you're a father of young daughters. Yeah, so so there is there will be more research in different areas of the world. So I know that in America that they do a, a whole system around NCAA and injury monitoring. Um, mm. I, I can't say I'm familiar enough with that research to, to really make comment. Uh, what I do know though is looking at brains um, once somebody has died, um, there is a lack of people looking at the brains of ex uh, athletes mm. uh, and female athletes. So at the Boston Brain Bank, which is the world's largest um, tissue repository for sport-related brains, I think they've only got a handful of females' brains, whereas they've got over a thousand uh, brains of male athletes. Wow! So you know we, we we're seeing this huge disparity, and, and they recognise that they're they're encouraging and running recruitment to to try and get more female brains, you know, because this is a hugely uh, an area that needs to be studied. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, we're just nowhere near those answers yet. And is that the reason for that? I, I guess we're speculating here, but I guess the reason for that is because there are more men dying of CTE because of the things that they do, whether it be ice hockey or NFL or whatever, or college football. Yeah, so so there'll be a host of reasons. Um, part of it will be that female athletes participate in sport are much great, much uh, smaller numbers than mm-hmm. male athletes. Um, because of that, there'll be less brains in, in your population to be able to get hold of or less people uh, at risk um and then and then there'll also be issues around um you know what the the kind of value of women's sport socially um you know we can see the difference in in the kind of uh, the prestige that's given to both elite men's and elite women's sport mm-hmm. so there'll be some bits under underpinning that uh, as well you know where, where is the money being put in terms of research where is the um, you know, and it, it's the same point I made really early on about we, we focus a lot on the elite men's game, but actually there's many more young people and children playing the sport, which we're not focusing on. And, and yes. it'll be the same issue for the women's game. Yeah. So if you like what we what we have here is examples of black holes of knowledge. We just don't have we don't have the knowledge to, to proceed. Yeah. And, and and that's it. At the moment, we just don't know enough about the women's brain. Um, and it's concussion risk in contact sports uh, and elsewhere, in fact. Mm. Um, so we need to develop that knowledge um, so that we're able to make really informed decisions. But, you know, my, pers- my perspective would be we don't have to wait forever until we, till we get all of this information. All of the anecdotes and what we can see happening is that women are at greater risk. Uh, and, you know, a new quote at a moment ago that in soccer, that women that play soccer have the same level of concussion risk as men that play American football. Mm. If we already know that, we should be taking action and, and trying to prevent as much of this concussion from taking place as possible. 
we have no cure, so we need to prevent it. Yeah, that yeah, that's an interesting point. So I'll just widen this discussion out a little bit now. And uh, again, I'm going to focus on the women's game, but uh, please feel free to comment on this regarding the kids' game as uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, your you mentioned govern- governance uh, about the RFU and how we had the WRFU before they merged. It strikes me as very sensible to have two separate unions or indeed three separate unions to manage the sport at different levels, whether that be elite men's, elite women's, and then maybe the amateur game and maybe even the kids game. Do do you have any sympathy for um, a a different governance structure where we can look after different elements of the game accordingly? Yeah, and and that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about it in depth. Um, I think there are benefits and weaknesses to both, I guess, both approaches. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the huge benefits and perhaps is an issue right now is that lots of the money from the elite game, so international matches from television rights and so on, is actually going towards the community game. um, How do do we pay for the rugby development officers, community coaches, Mm. the community clubs? So lots of that funding, despite, you know, I'm sure lots of community clubs would like to see more of that money, um, lots of that money comes from the elite game, whether that's selling tickets at Twickenham or, or TV rights. Mm. Um, and that's why organisations like the FA recently have had to make um, you know, huge cuts in staffing and the RFU indeed, um, is because they don't necessarily have that income coming into the organisation right now due to coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so I can, I can certainly see a benefit from, uh, I can certainly see a benefit from having it all together. Of course, um, that the the challenge of that was they're going to be different constituencies with different competing interests. Mm-hmm. What are the most important thing to the elite game right now will be very different to what's most important to community clubs as the youth and schools game as women's. Um, so it, it, it certainly is a challenge. I guess then working out who has what power at that, at that table is also a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, but for a number of years, over 70% of the participation levels in, in rugby have been under the age of 24. Yet there is nobody under the age of 24 in the decision-making process at the RFU. That seems wrong. Hmm. Does it seem wrong, Will? I mean, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking that through. I mean, I'm kind of neutral on that. I, I'm not sure that a dissection of the governance board based on age is necessarily the right thing the right thing to do based on life life experiences yeah so it it really depends on how you're basing it if if you're doing it on life experiences then and of course you'd go for the older people Mm -hmm. but let's be honest a 70 year old went to school 60 55 years ago Mm. um the game of rugby 55 years ago and how that was played at school is very different to today they would have no concept of an academy or playing at your club and at your school and in a developing player pathway and those competing interests they would have no idea about some of the stuff around media training and social media and how do how should young athletes conduct themselves uh, in a digital world so we've essentially got people making decisions based upon experiences that are 40 years out of date sometimes yeah that's and, a, and, that's and a fair point and I'll give them credit, some of the youngest members of the RFU Council, so I don't know, somebody like Maggie Alfonsi, mm-hmm. we're still talking over 20 years ago since they were at school. And my God, school's changed a lot in 20 years. 
Yeah, I mean, I would just I would just temper that with saying, thinking about thinking back. I mean, I'm 35 now, so thinking back about when I was 24, how sensible my decision making would be around my brain health would be almost non-existent, really. And thinking about the people, the players that play the game, I imagine a lot of them would have been in my camp. I just think that you know sometimes we have a rush to say, look, we need to be fully representative of the constituencies that play this game but we never necessarily think through you know what that would do because i can you know certainly from my own experience i believe i'd be far more reckless than the average 40 50 60 year old regarding my own health certainly yeah and and this is a i guess when you're looking at differences in in kind of uh decision making across age uh, and how that might translate into governance is a fascinating discussion. Mm. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that young people's ability to uh, recognise, understand, manage and measure risk is much more inferior. Uh, and, and that's part yeah. of the way that our brain develops. So we know that you know young men uh, particularly uh, have trouble identifying and, and, and working out how to manage risk as a, uh, right the way up until age sort of 24, 25 years of age. Yeah. So that's one aspect of this. But what we're also seeing is a, a generational difference in acceptance of risk with older people accepting a much greater level of risk compared to younger people. Mm. And that's because they grew up in times of coal mining, cars without potentially without seat belts, and a whole range of different experiences to what a young person would accept today. Yeah. Um, and that's why you often get I guess throwaway comments like, "Well, we used to do that as a kid," and "Oh, that never hurt me." Um, but that's because there's this very different generational divide on risk, and 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 you can look at a whole set of trends data to to see this. Whether it's looking at alcohol, drug use, smoking, uh, sport participation, mm. um, signing up to the army, etc., etc., etc. So we we can see that young people today are not as willing to engage in uh, or, or accept risk as potentially people of a generation before. Yeah, and I'm actually a terrible person to talk to about risk because I don't think I have a particularly good appreciation of it. But do you have sympathy with the argument that, you know, the, le- the less risk we experience as a society, the less tolerance we have for the remaining risk? Yeah, so so there is a, a, a and I absolutely agree that people need to be able to understand and manage their own risk Mm. and and to do that people need to go through some you know we're we're not i'm certainly not advocating for the notion of wrapping people up in cotton wool and Mm. you know preventing all risk it's just not possible yeah but what we do need to be doing is having those really constructive conversations with people about what is a risk how does it work and so on so when you've got a child you went and you teach them to cross the road you teach them you you stop at the side of the pavement you you tell them to look both ways you you sometimes stand there for longer so that you can help them judge the speed of cars and you develop this as a skill as a child Mm. that doesn't happen in rugby we don't turn around with children and say you know let's think about what tackles you do make and don't make if you make this tackle because this guy's running at you uh you know from 40 meters and is three stone heavier than you you'd probably be better off not tackling them (laughs) instead what we'd say is no just you know go around the legs and you'll be fine mm. and, and what we're actually trying to do and, and i think 
I would encourage people to go and watch a, an under sevens or under eights first tackling lesson is we're trying to teach kids to accept risk that inherently they know is not right because they most kids don't look at tackling and go I want to do that there are there are many that are fearful and we have to coach them through a process of you know being on your knees and doing that at low speed etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's not just because of learning it's a way of coaxing people around to being able to do this um it's the same as when you get asked children to to do abseiling or climb up a wall yes we we get them <laughs> dangle on the rope at, at lower levels so that they get more comfortable and then they'll be able to accept more and more risk we're coaxing them through it rather than than actually allowing them to make their own decisions yeah that's an interesting point so i've never thought of it like that i've often thought of coaching of the tackle because to be candid i do not think that there is a way to tackle which reduces concussion i know people say there is i just think it's a myth i think you either make the tackle and you're lucky and you don't get concussed or you do get concussed and that's it there might be a tiny variance on technique i think you know i don't know if you could prove that but i'm not sure i always assumed that the coaching of the tackle was basically to make the parents feel safe rather than the kids yeah, so it, 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 this is a really fascinating one. And obviously lots of the attention at the moment is focused on tackle technique. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you can do what I would call bad tackle technique, which obviously has a higher level of risk. Mm. But, you know, clearly if you go in with your head, you're going to be at a greater risk than if you go in with your shoulder. And, and, and so there is some, I guess, logic in reducing, in looking at technique and, and reducing it to a, to a certain extent. But, mm. but then that will plateau. Um, and, and the reason why, and, and I, I think it's a myth too, that tackle technique is the answer to the concussion problem. I think it's not. And the reason for that is pretty simple. If you teach the tackler how to make good tackles, that's fine. But the defender is always trying to make it difficult for you to tackle them. Yes. They're not going, oh, I need to have a good tackle so that that guy doesn't get concussed. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're going... How do I put them off balance? How do I go on his, on the off shoulder? How do I make this as difficult for them as possible so that their head's in the wrong place, their body's in the wrong place? They're, because essentially they're trying to evade it. So one party in this dynamic gross motor skill is making it hard. So this is never going to work. And we may be able to get slightly safer, but it's not going to reduce concussions. And it's certainly not going to reduce the sub-concussive repetitive head impacts which are common in contact sports which is actually the thing that we think causes those long-term neurodegenerative diseases such as dementia uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy Hmm. um etc so it's not just concussions we need to focus on here it's it's those every hit every contact every every time that player bashes their head that we need to focus on as well yeah i I completely agree with everything you've just said said about tackling there it's a two-party thing and one party doesn't want to get tackled so you know it is what it is um let's just turn our attention to a bit a bit more on to the children's side of the game now from Mm -hmm. my point of view i completely see where the pro game is going which is bigger stronger men hitting people harder you know continuously i I don't think we're going to see a reduction in that and i think that there is a trade-off which is they get paid a lot of money and therefore they go out and get um and put their bodies at risk whether that's right or moral or what have you i understand the deal which they're making now that is progressing and that is an ever-changing situation the 
situation with kids, however, as far as I can see, has been pretty much the same for, what, a hundred years? I mean, kids' physiology hasn't changed. So what has changed in the debate around children which has most concerned you, if anything? So, uh, yeah, a, a really interesting one. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll probably give five answers in response to that. <laughs> um, I, I think I agree. You know, I, I'm absolutely not trying to stop rugby. Um, I watched England at the weekend, very sadly. Um, I, and, and, and I will continue to watch the games moving forward. You know, I, I'm certainly enjoying watching elite rugby. Um, it keeps me busy on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Um, but those people are adults they're making a decision they're getting paid for it they have a whole array of medical teams around them you know from physios to doctors to dentists to all sorts of people that are there to uh, pick up the pieces and try and do their best to prevent any issues and likewise they're not whilst they're not paid as much as football players they are on fairly healthy wages so yeah. they could put some of this money aside to care for themselves in, in the later life um so I, I have no issue with the elite game. Um, I think there's things we can do to reduce concussions, and I absolutely encourage that we do those, such as reducing exposure to contacts and training sessions and, or bone-on-bone -bone training. And, mm. and I think there's some real good, good work that can be done there. In terms of the school game, uh, I think we are seeing developments um, over the last 100 years. We know that people are getting bigger, stronger earlier in their lives. A 14-year-old boy today playing elite level rugby is going to be significantly stronger engaging in much more strength and conditioning work than potentially their peers but also boys of 20 years ago uh, i also think the way we play the game is different you know and, and small changes which seem quite small but things like the introduction of the five meter offside line at the scrum allows for a 10 meter gap between backs so that when that 10's got that ball off the base of the scrum He's essentially running for 10 metres before he makes contact with his opposition number. That's a very interesting um, point, yes. Whereas whereas when we look at when I started playing rugby, the, the offside line was the back foot of the scrum, which potentially you would have a one to two metres of space to accelerate before you were being tackled. Um, now, of course, there are more tackles, but the velocity of those tackles were much lower. So... So there's this interaction and difference in the way, the style, the way we play the game. Uh, I think that we're, we're teaching people um, better than we ever have. You know, technique, things like how do we manage the breakdown. Um, all of these are changing. And as soon as it changes in the elite game, there will be a whole array of private schools, academies, uh, elite teams, county sides that will start to adapt the way that they're playing the game also. Mm. So little things like clearing out rucks are very different. Um, so, so I would say a lot has changed over the last hundred years in terms of the game. But, but more importantly, I think just our understanding and knowledge of these conditions is is increasing. Mm -hmm. um, Twenty years ago, talk of concussion was very uh, exceptionally infrequent. We probably only, you know, whether we use the word concussion at all uh, is, a, is a whole different debate. But we would probably only recognise it if somebody was knocked unconscious in an elite match. Yeah. Whereas today, you know, we, we're having these discussions around concussions. You know, this weekend, I think there were more HIAs than there were tries. Mm. Um, and, I, and, and so I think our understanding of what a concussion is is increasing. Um, but 20 years ago, we didn't know about CTE, really. 
it mm. was something that happened to a few boxers and a few others um and it was very much a, an obscure medical um discussion around the impact of hits to your head uh from sport uh and things like dementia today it's it's the hot topic that everybody's talking about in the media you could walk down the road and talk to people about cte and they probably know about it um so it's much more because our understanding of this condition is increased um and i and i think that's a massive step forward that actually we're we're knowing more about these problems and and as an analogy 100 years ago we weren't talking about the problems of smoking yes today we never let people smoke in a pub or a restaurant because we see that is you know completely wrong because we recognize the risks of that so just and, and conveniently so... and conveniently the 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 increased risk of smoking every year is about 30% and the odds of developing CTE also increases by about 30% per year. Um, and some research from American football shows that by delaying every year that we delay uh, participation in contact, uh, American football reduces that risk. And there's a really great campaign by the Concussion Legacy Foundation called Tackle Can Wait. And, and they'll explain all of the research uh, behind that. So I would encourage listeners to, to go to tacklecanwait.com, I think it is and look at some of that so uh, some really interesting things there so i think the one i want to address first is the um concussions for children Uh, forgive this it is a very cynical question but um 20 years ago uh would be my cohort of people playing rugby in schools uh do we have, I mean, do we have lots of people my age coming forward to the NHS or their GPs with uh, conditions caused by tackling at a young age in rugby? Because this would be my concern. This is what I'd be looking out for. Yeah, so we just don't know. Um, the NHS doesn't keep this data. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we are, uh, so at the moment, we don't have a, a comprehensive list or, or way of knowing the answer to that question. More and more people are talking about this. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, um, I know of a 22-year-old uh, who played rugby in a school game and suffered a concussion. Uh, seven. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Years ago now, I think it was, and he is still suffering from the symptoms of that concussion today. Um, 
Now, now we never used to talk about post-concussive syndrome mm. um, because people just thought, well, maybe you just got headaches or maybe you, you suffered depression. But actually, yeah. we can now see that it's the cause of that head impact, that concussion, that is leading to these problems. Yeah. So we are seeing an increased risk of this. Um, but most alarmingly, and again, we've only got a few brains to, to, to really suggest this, but we are starting to find CTE in people as young as 17 and 18 years old. Mm. So it, we're not talking about, and I think it's a, a convenient narrative for sports to say, well, it takes 20 years or, you know, oh, they've been playing rugby right away from age five to 50. And of course, you know, we expect uh, people to get a bit of colloquially wear and tear, but but these are 17 and 18 year olds that are starting to be diagnosed with CTE post death, usually caused by suicide. I think that's a problem. Um, yeah, I don't, dis- and- I don't disagree with you there. But I would also say something along the lines of uh, we do have a, men- um, a mental health epidemic in the country or in society more widely. And yet we have falling numbers of people doing sport in general and physical activity and rugby is just one of those uh, those numbers don't seem to correlate particularly well uh, uh, particularly well do they yeah so um and, and and i i would politely push back and say rugby is not our answer to the mental health uh, epidemic that we're facing in society today why, why would um, you say that so there's no evidence to suggest that rugby uh, is supportive of mental health. It mm-hmm. improves mental health. Okay. Um, and there's definitely no evidence that it's better for mental health comparative to other physical activity. So if we want to, if we want to solve the issue of mental health, we should be promoting people doing more physical activity. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that that should be cooperative, social. Yeah. And all of the things that we enjoy when we do, sport or physical activity we enjoy spending time with our friends we enjoy having a laugh you know the jumpers for goalposts in the park yeah. we certainly never had a league table but they're probably the most fun times we've ever played sport yeah and, and that's the stuff we should be promoting um you know going for a long walk every day would be much better than them smashing your head into somebody else in a rugby <laughs> um, okay. I, think, I think people should have the right to play rugby that's yeah. not you know if they choose and accept that risk but but I don't think it's the answer to our mental health epidemic, you know, globally. Um, so, so that that would be that would be my response. Of course, we also see that um, participation in elite rugby, uh, there is evidence to suggest that it is worse for mental health, where that's anxiety, depression. Yeah, so on and yeah, so. there there is a good point. I, I think that's a slightly separate topic, but yeah, I'd I'd like to talk um, talk about that as well. Let's just unpack that a second. So, if we just separate out the, separate out the actual activity of rugby um you know i would disagree with you that uh, i think that being part of a club or a group or you know an institution say is very very important for people's mental health now uh, the fact that 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 thing is is rugby um is neither here nor there i do not think it's the fact that that you know people are you know of like-minded dispositions are together and that's how you form your support groups through in, through institutions. I mean, I would have thought that was fairly important for uh, mental health. Yeah. So, and, and as I said, you know, that collaborative social aspect of physical mm-hmm. activity is really important. So, being part of a club, I I completely agree is really really important here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think the rugby part uh, actually is the bit that causes 
you know, being part of a rugby club, great, do it. Yeah. Play non play non contact rugby. Um, you know, have a game of touch uh, on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. I would I would encourage that more than anybody else. I think. Yeah. Um, we start losing some of the gained benefit by playing contact, um, and right. that's where it starts to become problematic. Okay, so. Just on the contact on the contact bit. So you know, I, as you as you may have guessed, I'm a fair. Uh, I'm a fairly keen rugby union in in enthusiast. Um, you said that the health benefits of rugby, and I actually do agree with this. Health benefits of rugby uh, are not uniquely uh, attributed uh, attributable to to rugby. Is, is is that broadly correct? Okay, so and I just I'd be interested to know on that then, like how is that how is that measured? Is that just actually the actual eighty minutes of rugby itself? So, so there there is only one paper that's come out on on looking at kind mm-hmm. of the health benefits or, or the benefits of rugby, um, and and it depends on exactly what you're looking at. So, mm. moderate to vigorous physical activity could be one measure, yeah, and, and that will certainly have a benefit. We could look at things like mental health and, and emotional well-being. And then we could also look at some of the social aspects. So, you know, being with friends, feeling part of a team, some of the values, things. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nobody has ever done a cross-sport exploration of this. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really difficult to pair compare apples and oranges and rugby to dance. Yeah. But there is a whole body of research over the last 50 years that has looked at um, I guess issues within sport um, and when we can see that broadly speaking and, and some of the research particularly on children they much prefer to participate in non-competitive fun enjoyable activities and I and, and us as adults do too mm. so so it's not necessarily that we can gain all of the same benefits from doing that than we can from rugby yeah. it's just that we're removing the risks and so if we talk about a benefit risk analysis, we can still get all the benefits by doing dance or going, uh, being part of a physical theatre group or playing frisbee mm. or by the side football or, you know, a whole host of different activities. You know, I could pretty much reel off 20 different yeah, sports. Yeah, sure. um, but we've not got that risk of head injuries mm. um, and brain injuries specifically. Yeah. Um, that we get from concussions. So I would encourage that we, we push people towards more non-contact things just for the better of their health as well. So, I, you know, I think what you're saying about can you get the benefits of health from other sports is, you know, it's undeniable. I, I, I do not doubt for a second that if I did a 80-minute dance class, I would burn a lot more calories and have a lot more fitness benefit than 80 minutes of, 80 minutes of, of rugby. Um, so the claim on its face sounds reasonable. I think what it kind of misses out, though, is the obsession of rugby itself, and this is where I was led to. Uh, this this is where I was uh, leading, which was, it's not the eighty minutes that's that's valuable, really, is it? It's the idea that because you are obsessed with this game, you go out running every day and you go to the gym three times a week and you watch what you eat because you want that result on a Saturday, and I wonder if that has been taken into account not just for rugby but i guess for all of the sports which people can get obsessed by but the point is that you need to have that hook to do your sport in order for you to get the health benefits of the wider activities yeah and this is a really interesting 
point, and I, I, I agree, you know, what, what, what in, in essence, unless I'm wrong, you're saying it's not the 80 minutes of running around the pitch, but it's the whole community and culture of the sport which pulls people in. Mm. Well, yeah, it, it's, but, the, it's, the, it's the fact that, you know, I'm running every day now. I'm, I'm, and by the way, I'm not a good, I'm not a particularly good rugby player, but I'm running every day to keep myself fit for when we can play rugby. So it has nothing to do with the 80 minutes on, on the field, except for that is my incentive to keep my body in some sort of shape. It, but, you know, it, that you wouldn't get, you wouldn't know that by just measuring what I did, did over 80 minutes. So, uh, and, and, and there is some merit in what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, this only works for people that enjoy playing rugby. Yeah, um, yeah. If you speak to a cricketer, they'll go, oh, I'd never do that for rugby. But yes, I'll keep myself fit. I'll go and do nets every night so that I'm, I'm a good cricketer. Mm. If, you, if you go and speak to a netball player, then they would do the same. Um, so it's not rugby that is the thing. You know, It's not that sport that you're playing that's the cause. It's the fact that that's the one you've chosen. Yeah. And we could get that from other sports. We mm. could get that from, you know, football players would argue that football's the thing that does it. Yeah, I'd completely, um, I completely agree with that. I would just say that, you know, if we've got a very diverse society who all have different interests and we need to access, I don't know, whatever it is that makes me want to play rugby, um, you know, and it, it isn't touch rugby. I can I can tell you that much. Um, I prefer netball to touch rugby. To, to touch rugby i've played three seasons of netball and it is infinitely better than touch rugby the reason i the reason i like rugby is because i i enjoy the contact and the competition and, and all the rest of it so i just wonder if particularly for young men ages say 16 to 24 it's that visceral nature of the sport which um you know feed you know feeds their appetite for you know for for, for competition and masculine endeavor and all the rest of it so, so yeah, and, and these are all developed in society. You know, mm-hmm. there are lots of countries worldwide that do not play rugby, and they're not suffering at greater rates than anybody you know in the UK. Yeah, okay. So, so rugby is not the cure for these problems. It's just the thing that we know, and that's the. So it's a cultural activity rather than it being objectively better. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you were born in a world where rugby wasn't played, your life wouldn't be worse. Yeah. Um, you would you would just find a different activity to have done this with. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's the, the important part. And I think rugby has some real great benefits. You know, the culture yeah. of rugby is unique. It's fascinating. You know, you other sports, they segregate fans at Twickenham. You, you are definitely going to be sat next to the Welshman that wants to watch England get pumped. Like, that's what makes rugby brilliant. But that can be developed and created in other sports. Um, and, and, and it's really interesting that you mentioned the kind of visceral, um, I guess, uh, approach that, that might be cathartic. Mm. But then would we accept somebody saying, well, I want to bring back mob football <laughs> and we're going to smash up the village and play it. And, and who cares if someone gets stabbed? Mm. Uh, because that also could bring that back. You, you know, society would go, no, yeah, we're not going to smash up lovely Cotswold village and do this because it's it's barbaric and you know society civilizes as knowledge increases and our mm. our ability to recognize what's moral and what's immoral uh, changes. Um, so we would never accept mob football and you know a death toll at the end of it. Um, 
But then we just find different outlets, though. Because if I didn't have rugby, I might be interested in MMA. Or if I was in Russia, I'd do sambo or college wrestling. I mean, you know, no one wants to be doing co- uh, college college wrestling because it's absolutely brutal. I mean, there's a whole r- range of combat sports. Um, and I guess we are fairly unique thinking about it uh, in well, you know, in the rugby playing nations, because I can't think of really an equivalent team sport like rugby. But I guess young men would just go into different combat sports who would otherwise be interested in rugby. No? Yeah. Yeah. You you know, we, we could talk about Gaelic football, lacrosse, AFL, you know, it's, there are a whole host of combat sports or contact sports mm. that, that people could go into. Um, I think it's important to just recognise that we're not calling for the removal of rugby. Yeah, that you is know, important. I, absolutely want to see rugby going on but i want us to do it better yeah. like we need better provisions in place and we need to tell people you know i uh, i would love to know exactly how much risk do you think your brain's at and you know it, it's great recently uh, i saw an interview with matt dawson saying um you know in in response to the legal case something that along the lines of well he knew the risk and and i just thought it was ironic that you know back in 2003 how did he know the risk? Yeah. We weren't talking about CTE in 2003. So there was no way that you could have known the risk from that. And, and whilst, and, and, and this is, this is where it becomes really interesting is, you know, I actually think we just need to tell people what the risks are and let them choose. Yeah. And that's I completely fine. Agree with that. no, no, no problem with that. It's you, just making sure that we do that. <laughs> do you think going forward, uh, and this is probably where I fall now um, with rugby, we should be treating it a little bit more like um, MMA or a combat sport, which is here are the risks. You may do it if you want. However, you would never, ever expect a, a child or anyone of any age to do MMA unless they wanted to do it. And I think that's probably where rugby comes off the rails a bit, particularly in schools. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. Like, I... I, I completely, and I, I want to see a form of rugby in schools. Mm. I, I think in school PE lessons, playing touch rugby will be fine. In fact, I, I think it would be better because there'd be more activity. We could have boys and girls doing it together. It's really easy to learn. So we'd be playing more than having to you know, spend a number of lessons learning how to tackle at low intensity. And, you know, if we're, if we're really worried about an obesity epidemic, we want kids running around and moving more. So it, all of these things make sense to me of doing that in school. Yeah. The, the, and, uh, and I think, the only point of this... I, I think, uh, so, uh, sorry, I keep on interrupting you. There's a, uh, there, there, is a, there is a slight delay. Uh, carry on, sorry. Yeah, so... And, and, I, and I think um, by, by doing that, we, we reduce the risks. And for sports like boxing... If we were to do boxing in schools, we would never say we're going to make kids go into the ring and fight it. No. We would just do some very light shadow boxing. You, know, you might do some very low impact on pad work, whatever that might be. But we would never just say to a whole group of year seven, 11 year old boys, sorry, you're coming into school tomorrow. You're going to have boxing matches and, you know, the PE teacher is going to watch and be referee. And, you know, oh, we'll just randomly select the kids and, you know, let them fight it out. That that would be that would be Daily Mail one oh one front page. There'd be uproar and everybody in society would probably be going, What on earth is going on in our schools? So But yeah, we kind of do rugby. So with rugby then, um I mean I've I've seen the calls and the calls are let's remove the tackle from from schools. Now 
Uh, I'm with you halfway, which is it should be, well, it, should, it certainly should be optional. And certainly if you're going to do an organised team sport where everyone has to play, uh, there has to be a certain, you know, it has to be con- you know, consensual. So touch rugby seems like, you know, okay. It's not a sport that I would play. I really, really can't, cannot cannot stre- stress that enough. But yeah, okay, I see that. But what about schools with the lads that want to opt in? Is that, uh, or indeed the girls that want to opt in? Yeah, so, um, and this is where it becomes tricky. And part of the reason why we've called for tackling to be removed is because of exactly this debate. And, and it's one that I and Alison and others have real vigorous and, and ferocious discussions about. So let's take a class mm-hmm. and you've got 30 students. Let's say it's all boys just for ease. Um, mm. And you've got one teacher. Now that's fairly standard in a school. Yeah. <clears throat> Out of that class, you might have at best 10 of the 30 that want to play rugby. Mm-hmm. And that's a very high number. Knowing that only 2.2% of the population play rugby after 16, mm. I'm giving a lot of, you know, going from 2% to 30% is being generous. Yeah. But a third of them want to play rugby. We'll say a third of them are indifferent, like they'll do it, but they just they'd probably rather play football or netball or cricket or whatever else. And then you've probably got a third that just don't want to be playing. So what do we do? If you're the teacher in charge, how do you manage that? What do you do? Do you say the, the 10 that want to do it, get it. The 10 that don't aren't bothered can play it. But then what do you do with the other 10? Mm. So we've got this issue in a P lesson where actually we by doing it, we're excluding 10 people. Now, my my perspective is, and this is before even considering teacher qualifications, the provisions, expertise, all of the other stuff. My, my, my recommendation is, well, just do non-contact. It's easier, it's better for, the, for PE, and it includes everybody. Mm. Um, then what we have is we've still got those 10 kids that want to do it, and we still think that they should be able to do it in an after-school club. We still think they should be able to do it in their community clubs. So they still have access to tackling. You know, I'm not trying to take that away from them, mm. but we're not making the 10 kids that don't want to do it, do it because the 10 kids that do want to do it, want to do it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And I don't think that's mentioned enough in, in the debate, actually. So if I was to read the headlines from the BBC or the... I mean, I read the article which went in the times the other day and i think it described uh, children's brains turning to mush and i think well this isn't particularly helpful um i think it would be much more helpful if when we're talking about concussion say look no no there is still an option for you to play this thing should you want to now you know how we come to the conclusion of you know what what age and what the rules are and whatnot i mean that's a that's a further discussion but it would be much more helpful if that was mentioned more i think yeah, and, and I, I completely agree. And, and part of the challenge is having these discussions uh, where you can get into some of this nuance and, and discussion. Because I, you know, having having spoke to thousands of people about this issue now, the conversation follows a similar trajectory where you go, they go, no, I don't think tackling should be banned. And you go, okay, why? Mm. And then they'll explain why they don't feel it should be banned. And you say, okay, well, you've got a son who's eight years old. Uh, he goes to a good school. Um, he's very small for his class and he, he hates rugby. Do you think he should be forced by the teacher to do it? And they're like, no. You go, well, that can happen right now. Yeah. There's nothing stopping that. 
Yeah. And then and then when you want to pick actually what we're saying, and you give a few scenarios, I think it seems pretty reasonable. Oh, and, and if you boil it down to a, a real sentence, it's kids just shouldn't be forced to do contact rugby. And in situations where there isn't agreement from everybody, let's do non-contact. And the reason for doing that is because there's a higher risk of rugby, the issues around concussion. We know that, in fact, only about a third of teachers are trained in rugby um, and have a qualification specific to rugby. So it just makes sense. Like It's quite a pragmatic approach rather than a destructive one. Mm. However, um, you know, when, the, when we submitted our letter to the Times, it was actually about eight times the size of the one that they published. And, you know, you only get real small debates and discussions, unlike being able to have a full conversation with you here. Um, and it was really interesting, actually, on, a, on another uh, podcast that not, not so long ago, um, Sean O'Brien and, and Jamie George kind of come to the podcast wanting to have a have a dust up about this issue. And, and by the end of it, they were like, oh, yeah, you're right. This is this is this is fine. Like, we don't disagree here. And that, that's where the headline can sometimes be seen as really alarmist and destructive to the sport. Um, but I don't think mo- many people will, you know, will disagree. You might still want to play rugby, mm-hmm. um, but it, it doesn't mean that I don't think there are there are few people today that will go, I think everybody should be forced to play rugby. Yeah. So do you think it's helpful for the debates? And I'll just give you some some examples here. Or oh, well the one example which is on the top of my head is comparing rugby to children in a war zone. So I've heard Alison Pollock make, make this uh, analogy before using the UN Convention of Children's Rights. And I just I don't think that's helpful. So it's really interesting and 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 I, I've seen no reference of Alison making that analogy to a war zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think where this has become really in, fascinating. Is, Sorry, I think you're right uh, there. Can I just can I just correct myself? You are right. I don't think she's ever said you know children playing rugby are analogous to children in a war zone. I think what she has said is this: this does come under the convention of um, uh, what whatever the UN convention is dealing with protection of children. But it's worth noting that that convention is there to protect to protect children in such dire situations as a war zone. So maybe I've maybe I've drawn a direct um, link there rather than she said it. But I still think it's yeah. uh, the same. The same thing still still applies, I guess. And and, and that's where and, and again, I think it's that really thoughtful discussion is is needed. Um, the, the United Nations Conventions of the Rights of the Child has been ratified by every country worldwide apart from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you start with that position rather than, and yes, people are right that its purpose, why it was implemented was because of how children were being treated in some uh, very deprived third world countries, including war zones. Um, that was why it was set up, but it's important to then go, but actually these are universal rights that are afforded to children globally. Um, mm. Whether that's a child, fleeing from a war zone right the way to children in in the uk spain germany australia etc yeah and and i think part of the reason why people jumped from well these are children's rights right the way through to a war zone um is because it creates this uh we're all going to have a bust up and an argue and a fight and and it creates division and what is actually quite a reasonable discussion yeah so I, I, I think I think that analogy was made about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child 
because somebody disagreed and then they went you're using a, a, a tool that was initially implemented for preventing children being victims of war mm. um justify this case but that would be like saying well you know somebody that's arguing their human rights based on uh sex discrimination at work imagine you know an employer walking into a court case and saying oh well human rights was to stop torture are you saying you're being tortured at work that you know a judge would be like that's ridiculous shut up and and that's why it it it, it stem it, it creates a very visceral you know confrontation mm. whereas actually that's not the position i think allison or any others have taken what we're just saying is these are children's rights that are not being looked at thought about in this context mm. okay what, what about the social arguments for rugby um and let me just give you the example of where i'm coming here uh, coming from here so i do find your arguments uh, 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 persuasive around um children's participation in contact rugby in schools um you know i i can see why it is uh, and i think we agree that maybe an opt-in si- an opt-in system at some level is probably a good idea the problem we're going to have at some point and the problem we do have actually is rugby is being played less and less in schools anyway because it is a risk and I don't think that state schools in particular like taking risks and they certainly don't have the resources to mitigate those uh, mitigate those risks or if they do it's a, it's a rare situation. Meanwhile you're going to have an awful lot of private schools who do have the resources and not only do they have the resources they hold their rugby team in the highest in the highest esteem in fact you go even further you would say that those private schools high, um, hold their rugby team in such high esteem that if you are talented in, in in rugby elsewhere in the state system they will come and they will give you a scholarship to play for them so they're never going to have the problem of not enough rugby players and they're going to continue to play contact are we not just making a situation where this sport, instead of being for the masses, is just going to become more and more elite? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting, um, I guess, thought process. Um, and yes, that may happen. Um, I think there are there are a number of things that that spring to mind from this. Um, mm-hmm. I think the private schools are a particular issue in this debate um, because you're right; they often the rugby team is held in high esteem it's a core you know they're promoted by the school these are businesses let's be honest private schools they need people mm. to be paying their fees and you know they're, they're selling education well the so char- well, well, well i mean the charities right i mean yes but, but they essentially what they need is they need to you know to sustain as a charity they need a certain number of people to be coming to that school yeah but um, i'd also say you know oxfam need a need a a fair amount of donors too so it's not, you know, yeah. it, it's not a for-profit. It's not a for-profit organisation. I think that's very important to keep in mind. It's not a for-profit organisation, but what they are doing is okay. They are marketing their rugby mm-hmm. as a way of attracting people to the school. Yeah. Um, and and so I I think essentially these young people are being utilised as selling the school, um, whether it's you know not necessarily for profit, but for the school. Um, so I think that's that's one thing to bear in mind. One one of the other things that and, you know I was on a call this morning with somebody, and one of the current England players was at a private school with them, mm-hmm. um, and they had to read in the dark because they'd suffered so many concussions. And this yeah. is a current England player that's that that we're talking about here going to a private school, um, 
I see that as problematic, that a school is willing to accept that person having to read in the dark because of concussions that they sustained in, in rugby matches at their school. Mm. So I find that, that a real concern. Um, I guess some would argue that those that go to private schools are more likely to have better resources. So if they do hurt themselves, um, then they have some mitigation, some buffer, um, usually financially, to be able to then sustain life, you know, whether they whether they are unable to work as much or whether they, you know, so there may be some benefit that they can mitigate the risks of concussion that, that state schools children shouldn't. Now, these are huge assumptions. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a real difficult one to make. Um, but yes, it may create a system where in state schools, they're not playing contact rugby and in private schools, they are. Yeah. I mean, I'd just say that, you know, as a average rugby player who would not be good enough to get into a private school, on the you know on the basis of a scholarship the opportunity for me to play the game would be far would be far diminished compared to someone of equal ability in a in a private school now you know we can debate exactly how much benefit rugby has on you as a character or socially uh, i do think you know those things are very debatable but there is something to it and i just wonder are we t- saying to you know poorer children you know this avenue is is it is no longer open to you so so this is where I think community clubs would need to step up because, you know, we we have thousands of community rugby clubs across England. Mm. Um, they they would they should, and I hope there still will be access to those community clubs for young people. Yeah. Uh, but this happens in a number of sports anyhow. Like, I never did rowing at school. I went to a state school. Yeah, that's true. We, you know, we, we could have these debates about rowing, horse riding, fencing. Cricket was never played at my school. Um, so I think these issues are prevalent perhaps not with rugby right now um but they are prevalent with a number of different sports a number of schools and so on um, mm-hmm. you know and there is a discussion to be had around um the PE curriculum in state schools compared to private private schools recognizing that private schools have a, a, a wider access to, to sports they probably have a, a, a wider range of staff members and coaches that are able to to support them through those sports that, that perhaps we don't have in state schools um, and particularly right now, and I know there's been lots of campaigns going on, especially from the Association for Physical Education, about how much are we valuing PE, physical activity, um, and school sport uh, in the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it's awful to hear that some state schools have removed it from the curriculum. Um, I guess it, you know, it is hard to do PE remotely. Yeah, it's very. But hard, we yeah. should be, we should be promoting that children get up and get active uh, as much as we can. Um, but these, these, this debate is a problem even when we take rugby out of it. Mm. So, you know, I would, I, I would like to ask them. So, what would be, what would be your suggestion to a young man such as myself when I was sixteen? So, when I was sixteen, uh, severely, di- severely, di- uh, severely dyslexic, uh, speech impediment. No real, G, uh, near, well, five GCSEs, none of which to write uh, to write home about. Some very unimpressive A levels, and the only reason that I actually went back to sixth form was the lure of rugby. Um, what do you say to people like that? Who, you know, the very fact that rugby is available in education is probably one of the reasons that they're even in education. Yeah, and, and you're actually talking about me. <laughs> like, you know, I, I the. the 
you know, when I was 11 years old, I was at risk of punishment exclusion from secondary school. Rugby mm. was the thing that, that, that helped me. That was the hook, the carrot that, that I was good at that helped me not misbehave in lessons. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I left with, I think, nine GCSEs that were okay. You know, I'm not, I, I've not got nine A stars at GCSE. I got fairly okay A levels, but part of that was, you know, most of my life in that moment in time was focused on rugby. Mm. Um, so, so this person is me, um, but but I I think we need to still tell them what the risks are and and you know have those discussions. I think um, rugby has a real can be powerful. Um, it can be that hook, that carrot, that that privilege for young people that helps them remain in education, remain in, and and I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I get alarmed when you hear the stories of the opposite end where concussions suffered in rugby are actually impeding education and that's where i see there being a problem um so i think we need to tell people the risks we need to let them know what they're signing up for mm-hmm. and subsequently they can then choose what they do um and, and i hope that sport and pe is still used as that carrot so that young people like myself can find something they're good at and that they're valued for in school that helps them stay in school you know, I, if you looked at my school record and someone was employing me for a job, I'd be a very average candidate. So yeah. since leaving school and then subsequently going on and doing a degree and being successful as an academic, which was never noticed when I was in school, um, that, that things have changed. And I, and I think that's, but, I, I hope that to continue. What if, would, I mean, you, you've, you perfectly um, articulated how I felt about the sport when I was young. You can't think that touch rugby would have been able to, you know, keep you keep you hooked in the same way that contact would. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if I'm honest, I think the thing that really got me uh, engaged me in school was the fact that I was successful at something, and I had some people that said, you know, actually believed that I was able to do something and supported me in that that endeavour. Mm. I think if that was cricket, then then it'd have been the same. Yes. Um, yeah. I was rubbish at cricket, though, to be clear. But um, but it's the fact that I was good at rugby that I was able to, that that's why it happened. Hmm. Um, but there are lots of people that are not good at rugby. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think finding finding that thing for every child in schools is important. Um, but there would have just been a different thing that I'd have been good at. Yeah, I'm not convinced that there would be anything which I'd have been particularly good at. But there again, that's counterfactual that we'll never know. So, uh, you know, it's, it is it is pure speculation. Well, I'll let you have the last word on this. Um, how would you like to see schools develop um, their approach to rugby? And how do you see the pathway to contact going in the future? Or how would you like, how would you like it to go to full-fledged rugby? Yeah, so... So really all, all we want is, is I don't think any child should be forced or made to play rugby against their wish. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should have an opt-in system if we are going to deliver rugby. I think in, in the PE curriculum, the easiest way of doing this is to have non-contact rugby in, in school PE with contact being offered after school or in the community clubs. Uh, and, and I think that in terms of the structure is really all we're, we're calling for. Uh, I would like to see better training for PE teachers uh, on on rugby and other contact sports if we are going to to push that um then even those that are delivering after school clubs should have recent 
um, CPD and training in, in delivering rugby. Um, and, and then I think we need to make concussion education much more prominent for mm. everybody involved in sport. I think it's a farce that PE teachers are not required to have a, a first aid certificate. I think it's a farce that they're not required to have concussion training. Um, I think these are really easy things that, or, you know, you speak to any lay person, they would just say it, it's an easy win and it should be an expectation that to deliver sport, you should you should have some basic first aid and understand concussions. Um, so I, I'd like to see those things put in place. Um, I think longer term, we, we may consider um, reducing exposure to contact. Um, so I think particularly in the private schools, looking at how much contact training our kids doing. Um, and I know that the elite game are certainly looking at this at the professional level about how much contact training do we need to do between yeah. matches. You know, and, and perhaps right now they should be doing a bit more contact training after watching the rugby last weekend. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but but it, it, it's very much, a, you know, we should be looking at that exposure to, to contact more. And, and if we can delay people participating in, in the contact elements, you know, whether we, we don't start contact rugby until age 11, um, because there is definitely a divide between those that have, that have done rugby in a club or a private school and those that have come from the state sector where you're unlikely to participate in contact rugby until you get to secondary school. So we're already seeing this mismatched system. So mm. maybe we should just delay it to age 11 so that it's less mismatched. If we could push it to 14, that would be even better. Um, and, I, and I think that's it, really. Um, I think, you know, my concern is about the massive children uh, in schools that most potentially don't want to participate in contact rugby and are being put at risk because some do. Um, and I don't want to take away rugby for the some that do, but I just don't want to see those kids that don't want to participate being put at risk uh, at that expense. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Dr. White, where can we find your um, Twitter and your work and ev- and everything else? Uh, sure. So um, I'm on Twitter. It's Adam John White, um, and likewise, I, I work at Oxford Brooks. So, um, if you just Google Adam White and Oxford Brooks, you'll be able to find uh, my page there, and most of my research and bits is, is contained there. So, fantastic. Now, I did notice that it was a social, a social and cultural perspective, which it says mm-hmm. on your on, on your bio, and I'd love to talk, talk talk to you about that another time. So, uh, yeah, I, sure. I, I I would love to have you on again. Brilliant. Yeah, anytime, you know, just get in touch and we can we can chat more. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye.